From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Make no mistake, we recognize that this case will be difficult to prosecute. The case of Elijah McClain, that is, who died in Aurora Police Custody. Colorado's Attorney General announced charges against officers and paramedics, including manslaughter. What the indictment reveals, plus how laws to prevent police brutality have changed since McClain's death. Then, for an Afghan woman who fled to Colorado, the U.S. occupation was something akin to a dream. These 20 years, I think I was uh, sleeping, and right now I woke up and see the Taliban is around again. So she's trying to get her siblings out. They are Taliban targets. Later, can the state's new congressional district really represent? Holy smokes, we're going to get ignored. To me, it says my vote won't count. I'm J.C. Futrell, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. My family and I love CPR. That's where we get our news, our entertainment, and we love the local stories. It's been a dream of ours for years to be able to donate a car. We uh, totally recommend it for anyone else to do. It took just a few days between submitting online and having the tow guy come and take our vehicle away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The three police officers and two paramedics charged in the death of Elijah McClain turned themselves in late last night. They posted bond and were released. McClain died in Aurora police custody two years ago, and charges just came down against those involved. Each of the five defendants faced one count of manslaughter, and one count of criminally negligent homicide. Those are the most serious charges, but the grand jury handed down others, 32 altogether. That word came Wednesday from Attorney General Phil Weiser, whose office will prosecute the case. Make no mistake, we recognize that this case will be difficult to prosecute. These types of cases always are. Our goal is to seek justice for Elijah McClain for his family and friends, and for our state. And for our state, Weiser said there as cameras clicked. He underscored that these men are innocent until proven guilty, then added, We're here today because Elijah McClain is not here, and he should be. He was a son, a nephew, a brother, and a friend. When he died, he was only 23 years old. He had his whole life ahead. And his family and his friends must now go on and live without him. His death is a loss to all of us. Elijah McClain's memory will live on as a blessing to all of us. After his death, Colorado continues to lead on law enforcement accountability. Weiser explained that the pandemic slowed the grand jury process and that a civil investigation continues. His office is looking into whether Aurora police and fire have a pattern of civil rights violations. We invited the AG onto the show today, but he's not doing interviews about the case right now. You did hear him say that Colorado leads on police accountability. One lawmaker who has taken up that cause is State Representative Leslie Harrod of Denver. And Representative, thank you for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. As we heard, the state attorney general made a point of saying that he thinks this will be a difficult case 
to get convictions on. Do you agree with that? You know, I think he knows best, um, but I am encouraged by his, you know, bravery and boldness to move this forward in a way that is just and fair. I mean, Elijah McClain was murdered uh, and all five of these individuals caused that murder and should be brought to justice. You say bravery. Why do you think it's a brave decision to move forward on? You know, politically, these cases are hard. Um, And politically, the easy thing to do would be what the DA uh, did prior uh, to the national outcry for Elijah McClain, which was nothing to say that there was not sufficient evidence. But as uh, Colorado and the world watched the video of Elijah McClain's murder, uh, the evidence is pretty clear uh, that that these folks did have a hand in murdering Elijah McClain, someone who was suspected of nothing. The autopsy report labeled the cause of death undetermined, and uh, as you hinted at there, the local district attorney declined initially to press charges. Uh, Do you think that those facts make it more difficult to get a conviction? Absolutely not. Um, I think that those those facts show that certain elected officials do not value uh, black lives, quite frankly, and do not um, want to take that that courageous step to move forward with these indictments, as Phil Weiser has, our attorney general. Um, you know, so so the interesting thing is, and I think the thing that Colorado continues to grapple with, as other states across this country, is when law enforcement is policing law enforcement, um, we tend to see less of these cases being brought forward. Um, you know, the coroner was involved, but also law enforcement was involved uh, in, in the decision the coroner made. Um, there were, there's evidence and calls of, of conversation between, uh, between law enforcement officers of Aurora PD and the coroner. I mean, it, it, there, there's just so many places where um, justice was, denied for Elijah. And now I believe the attorney general um, has done the right thing, has brought all the evidence forward, and the grand jury supports that and brought forward with uh, these indictments. You make mention of the rapprochement between the autopsy and law enforcement. That's something our own justice reporter, Allison Sherry, has reported on. She'll join us in just a few moments. I want to talk about the legal landscape here after several legislative sessions that addressed police accountability. First off, uh, my assumption, Representative, is that none of those laws passed after McLean's death would be retroactive. Is that a safe assumption? Well, it's interesting. Um, I think there are a few provisions that we passed uh, that have had impact on Elijah McLean's case. One is that pattern and practice investigation that you mentioned. And that was something that was created in Senate Bill 217, which was our police accountability bill. Um, while Elijah McLean's case did not trigger um, that investigation, the treatment of the protesters and the treatment of others in Aurora allowed that investigation to be open. And now that look back is happening where they are also investigating Elijah McLean's case. And so there are provisions in our bill um, that are triggered by the by uh, investigation um, or by the seek, seeking of information, not necessarily when the incident occurred. Uh, and so, uh, you know, some parts of our bills in a bill 217, House Bill 1250, and 1251 will actually um, have relevance in this case. Through the patterns and practices investigation, again, into whether Aurora police and fire have a history, a pattern, if you will, of violating people's civil rights. Uh, Let's talk about what changed because of 
of both Elijah McLean's death and the resulting legislation. So they used holds on him that are now banned, correct? Absolutely. They they used, uh, put Elijah McLean in a chokehold, uh, and that is banned now today. Uh, talk to us about the administration of ketamine, which was used in the McLean case. Where does the law stand now on its use in those types of situations by paramedics? Uh, Elijah McLean was deemed to have um, excited delirium, and that's why they was ketamine. Uh, now in Colorado, the excited delirium uh, diagnosis or defense, if you will, is banned, is no longer recognized by the state of Colorado. Um, and the use of ketamine for law enforcement purposes uh, is also now banned. And the direction of ketamine by law enforcement um, to a paramedic or first responder is banned. Um, but additionally, the governor has taken other actions, which was to um, temporarily halt all waivers across the state of Colorado. So right now, there is no ketamine being used in the field. And I think that's very important and directly related, not only to Elijah McLean's case, but the fight that his mother, Shanine McLean, um, has undertook to bring justice. According to the indictments, uh, the officers and the medics on scene overestimated his weight by quite a bit and administered a dose that was excessive for his size. Do you think the stop itself, the police stop itself of Elijah McClain, would now be illegal under the changes that these bills ushered in? Absolutely. Um, Senate Bill 217 also talked specifically about when someone can be stopped. Elijah McClain was not suspected of any crime. He never should have been stopped in the first place. And the use of force that was used against him was completely unreasonable. Um, it did not fit the alleged uh, crime, which there was none, right? So you can't just stop someone on the street for walking home um, and use that amount of force on, on, on that individual. That would be illegal. But also what would be illegal is the fact that those officers didn't intervene to stop the excessive use of force either. And so there would have been multiple additional charges brought against these officers um, because of the force that they used. Quite, quite simply, um, and you know, I, I talked to Shanine about this, and also the attorneys representing the case. If Elijah McClain likely would still be alive. All right, we lost you for just a few moments there. I understand, Representative, you're in transit and you're kind to make time for us. You mentioned Shanine. Shanine McClain is Elijah McClain's mother, and uh, maybe just repeat that thought for us, would you please? Sure. Um, after speaking with Shanine, and, and, and she agrees, and the lawyers that represented the Elijah McClain case, you know, if we had the bills in place, uh, Senate Bill 217, 1250, and 1251, Elijah McClain would still be alive today. You mentioned the duty to intervene. This is the idea that if an officer witnesses uh, abusive behavior uh, by another officer, that they are legally now required to either intervene at the moment or to report that after the fact, correct? Correct. That is the law. And if they do not do that, uh, they face uh, misdemeanor consequences, but also the revocation of their post-certification, their ability to be a law enforcement officer. Obviously, these police officers and paramedics are innocent until proven guilty, but um, it did take an investigation by the state attorney general and a statewide grand jury to get to the point of indictments. Do you see this representative becoming the norm, the need for statewide investigation of local cases? Unfortunately, absolutely. I mean, until we have a system that 
you know, truly says that uh, law enforcement must be unbiased in their investigation of law enforcement. And I do think that we'll see more state intervention and we're stri- we will strengthen our laws to ensure that that happens. Do you think that there needs to be changes at the federal level before I let you go? Absolutely, there needs to be changes at the federal level and every state. Um, this is not an incident that is unique to Colorado, though it is one that has gained prominence across the, the globe. Um, unfortunately, um, law enforcement abusive practices within our communities um, happens and they need to be brought to justice. The only way that we will have trust in the community and law enforcement is if there is accountability on all sides. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it, Representative. All right. Democratic State Representative Leslie Harrod of Denver, who has championed the issue of police accountability at the State House, uh, joining us there in transit. And uh, we apologize for the connection. Let's spend a few minutes now with our justice reporter I mentioned earlier, Allison Sherry. She has been indeed covering not just the McLean case, but the larger issue of police accountability. Allison, thank you for being with us. Hi, Ryan. Care to reflect on anything you heard from Representative Harrod first off? Well, you know, um, she noted at the at the top of the interview that um, that this is extremely brave of of Attorney General Weiser to do this. I, I would I would characterize it a little differently and say that um, I think this is really rare. You know, we we covered and and CPR News covered six and looked into six years of police deaths in Colorado. Um, this has never happened, and I think it's that that a, that a, a governor writes an executive order that appoints the attorney general to be a special prosecutor into a single police death. And the results of this were that it completely reversed the local decisions to exonerate the cops two years ago. Um, that just hasn't happened um, in the state in, in you know, for as long as we've looked back at this. Mm. And um, I think, you know, I think really if you're going to try to really put it down, boil it down, it's a product of the police reform movement, the nation's reckoning of police violence against communities of color last summer, you know, people who took to the streets, it made a difference. I don't think that the governor would have appointed Attorney General Weiser to do this if those protests were not had not had happened. Um, you know, to remind everybody, Elijah McClain died in the summer of 2019. This was a full year before Governor Polis decided to appoint Attorney General Weiser to be special prosecutor. So, you know, and there were a local there was a local investigation and the case was pretty much closed. The coroner, you know, determined the cause of death to be um, undetermined. So there was no they, they had no reason. They didn't know why he died. And the law enforcement officers who arrested him all went back to work. One was fired for something unrelated. But that you know, I think that's that that was my takeaway from from what she said. Well, that's important context. I thank you for it, Allison. You've read the indictment. What new details emerge about the circumstances leading up to and around McLean's death? Yeah, you know, I just I just talked about the local investigation. I was surprised at the, at the indictment, how damning the narrative was compared to the documents that came out at the time. The investigators found that basically everyone who encountered Elijah McLean that night before the before he we went to the hospital made major mistakes, broke protocol. They they used too much force. They put him in carotid holds, two which you're not. They were never supposed to do. They also 
used something called a bar hammer lock where they crank his arm back. They said they heard his arm pop three times. They ignored the fact he said he couldn't breathe. They ignored the fact he kept on saying, ow, and this hurts. The paramedics arrived. They didn't check him out at all. They didn't even talk to him. They stood nearby and talked to the officers instead. They administered ketamine at a much larger dose than was appropriate. Um, And then he went into cardiac arrest, and we know the rest of the story. Um, And I also think, you know, the indictment also completely reversed the original coroner's report, which said that this, that Elijah McClain died of a homicide. He was a healthy 23-year-old before he had this encounter with police. If these charges stick, how long might these five men spend in prison? Well, this is a little subjective, but manslaughter carries two to six years. Criminal, criminally negligent homicide is up to three years. You know, it's unclear if they were to be convicted, if a judge would maybe combine that sentence. I think it's safe to say they won't be in prison for the rest of their lives, but they'll likely face some prison time if convicted of any of these counts. Um, also noteworthy here, and, and this would definitely come into consideration, none of these people have a criminal record at all. You've spoken with Elijah McLean's mother, Shanine, just as the representative had uh, since the grand jury announcement. What stood out about your call with her? Yeah, I I went to see her. She was at her lawyer's office all day yesterday talking to reporters. She was emotional. She was overwhelmed. Um, I don't think after two years in the local investigation exonerating the police officers, she expected anything close to this. The people that were in control, that were supervisors, should be appalled at themselves. They should totally be disgraced right now because they had a job to uphold and they didn't do it. They literally walked away from the reason why they were hired. I'm very curious how police and other officers... Uh, groups and first responders are reacting to the grand jury indictment? Yeah, the the police union, um, Aurora Police Association, repudiated the indictment, said the officers did nothing wrong. The Aurora police chief, Vanessa Wilson, said she'll continue to cooperate with the judicial process and she supports Janine McLean. And the Aurora Fire and Rescue Chief said he's very sympathetic to the family and the fr- and family members and friends of Elijah McLean. Thank you so much for being with us, Allison. Thanks, Ryan. CPR Justice Reporter Allison Sherry. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The war in Afghanistan may be over, but one Colorado woman's fight has just begun to get her family to safety. Nargis, we're not using her last name, is here from Afghanistan on a special immigrant visa. But she says her siblings face retribution from the Taliban and only ones managed to flee. Nargis, thank you for being with us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Let's talk about your siblings I understand that your brother, one of your brothers, was able to leave Afghanistan and has arrived in Mexico. Do I have that right? Yes, that's right, yeah. And tell us just briefly about him, will you? He was working at a private charter TV for like 2000 until now that Kabul was fallen down by Taliban. Almost 20 years he was working there and he got some warning from the Taliban. And that's why he was worried about his family uh, more than himself. And 29 August, I think, he left Kabul to a journey that his friend made for him. So he was able to leave Kabul. As you say, he works for a media outlet that I understand the Taliban are opposed to. Do you know how he got out of Kabul? Actually, he got to... Other state, like from Kabul to Mazar, 
And then from the Mazar, they got a flight to Egypt and then to Mexico. And then to Mexico. Uh, Part of the issue, of course, is that there have been restrictions on getting to the Kabul airport by the Taliban. The U.S. embassy is now closed in Kabul, which makes that avenue difficult. So he was able to get, you say, to Egypt and then to Mexico. Is it your hope that he arrives to the United States? Hopefully, hopefully, because Mexico is nearby the United States. That's why I'm wondering maybe he's coming here. And he's right now there, maybe waiting for the, his process to come in the United States. Now, was he able to leave Afghanistan with his family or is he alone? With his family. Okay. And it's tell- a good news because I was worried about his wife and his children. Well, I'm pleased to hear that. Now, how many siblings remain of yours in Afghanistan? I have two sisters and two brothers. My second brother also was working in the same media with my older brother. And he also was colleague with the French government. He was able to go to French by his family too, but unfortunately he got to airport four times, but was not able to go in the airport. And um, after four times try, unfortunately he still stay at Kabul. He had hoped to get to France, Uh, given his association, as you say, with the French government, part of the Allied forces. Uh, And then you have two sisters as well, as you say, in Afghanistan. I want to note that in addition to associations that your family has had with the media and with Allied forces, you and your family may also be targeted because you are part of a minority community, the Hazaras in Afghanistan. Yeah, a Persian-speaking mm-hmm. minority. And uh, my understanding is that 14 Hazara were killed by the Taliban uh, just this week in a province west of Kabul. Does that add to your concern then, Nargis? Yes, that's why I was wondering. You know, the Taliban is not changing anymore. They are like enemy with my people. Everybody, the whole world knows about the attacks and that they gave to my people in Kabul and every other province that Hazara was living there. Like the hospital that they attacked, the university they attacked them, the students that were killed by Taliban. It's a proof that they are killing us. They tried to killing us and they are not changing anymore. They are same the people that they were 20 years ago. We have heard from the Taliban that this might be a new kind of Taliban, uh, but you are not seeing evidence of that in how they are treating the Hazaras. Um, I want to say that the Hazara make up about just under 10% of Afghanistan's population. Let's talk for just a moment, Nargis, about your hopes to get your other brother and two sisters out of Afghanistan. What are you doing right now? What are people around you in Colorado doing right now to make that happen? There were a lot of evacuation emergency forms that me and my friend and the Afghan community that I know, they filled them out, but we didn't get any response about that form. Um, right now, I asked my friend, can you uh, get out your family? But they say no, and we cannot believe <laughs> filling out the forms anymore. 
But I saw a news that we can uh, take off our family from Afghanistan, even with the green card. It's a new program, but I'm not sure because I'm not a citizen that uh, green card is a little bit tricky to helping my family out from the Afghanistan. It's been tricky, you say, a lot of forms to fill out. There's a program actually yes. called Humanitarian Parole. I've learned. Yeah, that's one a new one that I was I'm telling. It's a new program. And there is on the Citizenship and Immigration Services page, I just checked out, specifically information for Afghan nationals on parole into the United States. I'll just read briefly from this. Due to quickly changing circumstances in the region and the closure of the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, beneficiaries may experience delays in processing their cases and may need to arrange travel to a U.S. embassy outside of Afghanistan to continue processing their parole request. Nargis, you arrived in the United States, I think about four years ago, on a special immigrant yes. visa from Afghanistan, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's correct. And, and what were those circumstances? How did you arrive in the U.S.? Because my husband was working in American military in 2010, I think, until 2014 for four years as an engineer. And when we were in Afghanistan, uh, you know, the situation getting worse every day. And there was a lot of bombing and attack there. That's why we were worrying about our children, not especially myself or my, my husband's self, just about the, the future of our children, what will happen for their future. That's why we, when we heard about the SIV or special immigration visa, we applied for them. Uh, we able to come here. So I want to note that you, I think, have four children, correct? Yes, right now, yeah. Yeah. And uh, you say your husband was an engineer. Has he been able to find work uh, in Colorado? Actually, yes. Uh, right now, yeah, he's working in a um, company right now. But before that, finding work for a refugee is very challenging, you know, because of language or uh, the company or the people cannot believe on the strange people who came here and doesn't know about the culture, doesn't know about um, how work here. It was very hard to him uh, finding a job. But after three years, he, he got uh, successful to finding a job. Well, I'm pleased to hear that. You're talking there about the linguistic and the cultural barriers. I wonder what you make, Nargis, of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. How, how do you feel about the United States right now, a, a country that both took you in, but, uh, you know, that you're having some difficulty with in trying to extricate the rest of your family? Yeah. You know, I'm not a political woman, but I believe it's happened because of the politics. You know, it's not the people that do it. It's the government, it's politics that caused the, this situation happen to my country. 20 years ago, it was like a short dream for me, for my people. For me, when I was thinking about these 20 years, I think I was uh, sleeping. And right now I woke up and see the Taliban is around again. If I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is that you had some hope when the Americans and allied forces were in Afghanistan. That felt a bit yes. perhaps like a dream. And now it seems yes. like you're waking back up to the Taliban's presence. Yes. Yes. Uh -huh. 
And it also sounds to me like you're saying that if you have any blame, it's for governments, not individual people. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's correct. Because I love American people because when I arrived here, I got some friends, American friends. I always, they are still my friends and uh, we communicate together and they are really lovely people. But it's this uh, 20 years because of the communication between Taliban, U.S., our government, I, I really don't like it. I'm really hopeless from my government that our president, crazy president, escape away and leave the people alone. And Taliban came back and Taliban is very clear to the world, to the others' country. They know Taliban clearly and they know their behavior. They know what they are doing with people, what they have done with the people just by religion. You're speaking, Chris, of the former Afghan president, Hamid Karzai, and of the religiosity, the unforgiving religiosity in many ways of the Taliban. Does Colorado feel like home? You know, first time when I came here, I feel really like Colorado. I really like it yet. But when the August 15, when the Kabul fall down, I was feeling very um, hopeless here. I was feeling I'm lonely here because there is no homeland anymore for me. That's why you're a little bit strange. But right now, I'm really happy to be here just for my kids, because now they are not in the domination of Taliban. I can make them a good future, but not uh, in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is very horrible situation, especially for kids and for children, especially girls. Girls. Are you able to have much contact with the two sisters and the brother who remain in Afghanistan? What kind of contact do you have? I'm just uh, chatting them with Messenger or calling them with WhatsApp. That's it. I cannot hear them clearly, and I use the more uh, chatting them. And what sorts of things are they telling you right now? Right now, they are uh, really scary about the Taliban because it's first time they are in the domination of Taliban. Yeah, let me say that your family left Afghanistan for a while yes. when you saw that yes. hope uh, that you yes. mentioned. With the U.S. presence, you moved back. And so this is a very new experience for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Had you asked your sisters and your brothers to get out earlier, to leave Afghanistan earlier? Because the the signs pointed to the fact that the U.S. would be withdrawing. You and your husband and family were able to get out. I wonder if, if some part of you feels frustrated that they didn't try to escape earlier. When I came to U.S. in for almost four years ago, I asked them, please, you can leave the country. Please do it before the Taliban came back again. But they were very hopefully for the future and say, no, the Taliban cannot come back again. Uh, the U.S. Army is here. But they didn't try until the cover fall down and then there is no more way to escape. It sounds like they didn't think that the U.S. withdrawal would result in such an immediate transfer of power to the Taliban. It sounds like that surprised them. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it was. Even I asked them when the province fell down, I told them it's still the least time you can go. 
go to Pakistan, go to Iran, go to the other countries, but they say no, it takes a long time when the Taliban can catch the Kabul. For example, they say it takes three months for them to take the Kabul, but it's happened for just one night. Hmm. Are you able to sleep, Nargis? I can't fathom what it would be like to be this far from family and uh, this unplugged from their minute-by-minute reality. How are you doing mentally? You know, uh, right now I'm better because one of my siblings was able to get out the country. Just I'm worried about the other of them, mm-hmm. the four other of, other of them that I uh, left behind. But during the 15th of August until the end of the August, you know, it was very heartbroken for me. And I was got angry on my children. I got angry for every small thing. I got angry very quickly and didn't like to make a tea for my husband. And night, I was not able to get sleep like other days. I'm grateful for your time. And uh, perhaps we can check back in with you, Nargis. Thank you so much. That is Nargis, who's in Colorado on a special immigrant visa in light of her family's service to the war in Afghanistan. She is trying to help her siblings escape the Taliban. We didn't use her last name to protect her family's safety. Be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Our team's been traveling the state these past two weeks, and Avery Lil has one more stop before we bring it home. Hi, Avery. Hi, Roy. Where will you host the show on Friday? Well, we are already in the San Luis Valley, and tomorrow we'll broadcast live from Alamosa. Our photographer, Kevin Beatty, shared some photos from the valley. One of them was like mountains of potatoes. What's up there? (laughs) Right. Well, fun fact, the San Luis Valley produces more fresh potatoes than anywhere in the country except Idaho. Growers want to ship more potatoes to Mexico, but they've been stuck in years of trade disputes. So we'll get the latest on that potato battle. These past two weeks have been just a lovely amble across the state. And um, you'll have a story that picks up on the theme of journeys tomorrow. Yes, Our Lady of Guadalupe Parish in Antonito is building a prayer labyrinth. Here's Ronald Rael, the designer of the labyrinth. He grew up in the San Luis Valley and teaches architecture at the University of California, Berkeley. The idea was how can we create not a journey outward, but a journey inward. And the labyrinth is exactly that. It's both an inward journey because you're walking a long distance in a small area, but it's also an inward spiritual journey as well. Oh, it sounds like a lovely experience. What's the labyrinth made of? More than 25,000 adobe bricks. Tomorrow we'll introduce you to the man who learned to make them just for this labyrinth. For now, here's what Rael had to say about the significance of the project. This is a structure. is one of the largest adobe buildings that are being built in the 21st century. 
And so just from that perspective, it is a monument, but I think it's also a monument to a very special history in Colorado and New Mexico. And it's going to draw the descendants who have scattered all over the world back to their home from where they came. The layers of meaning. Well, before you go, Avery, an important question. What is the best food you've eaten on your leg of the trip? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is tough. I had some really good cheesecake last night. Uh, But probably Los Hilbertos, it's a 24-7 taco joint in Grand Junction. Um, Our producer, Michelle Folter, and I ate there late Sunday night, and the carnitas were incredible. Uh, What about you, Rai? What was your favorite when you were on the road last week? Uh, it's possible that my favorite food hasn't been tasted yet. I brought back cantaloupe salsa from Hannigan Farms in La Junta, Colorado, and I haven't cracked it open just yet, but I have high hopes. And Avery, you need to hurry back because I left a jar of this cantaloupe salsa on your desk. I <laughs> uh, can't wait to try it. Thanks, Ray. Absolutely. Avery Lill hosts the concluding episode of Colorado Matters On the Road Again tomorrow from Alamosa. Maybe you know Colorado's getting an 8th congressional district, and a first draft from the Independent Commission puts it north and east of Denver. Caitlin Kim hit the road to find out what might bind this area together. Instead, she heard a lot about the forces that divide it. We continue our special report on redistricting from Purplish, CPR's politics podcast. I'm Caitlin Kim, here with Betta Berklin. Hey. We're going to discuss how the commission is going to solve a problem like a new congressional district. It's a good problem to have. Colorado certainly doesn't want to be losing population. It is complicated. Where do you find 721,714? Wow, I actually (laughs) made it through that. People to, to put in this district that meet all the other criteria that you're required to do. Yeah, just thinking about it makes my head spin, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> yeah, because you, you shift one thing and then it shifts. It's like a Rubik's Cube. Actually, someone the way someone described it to me, it's like a bubble, right? You push in one area of the bubble or the balloon and another area will pop hmm. out. So, yeah. That, that makes sense. And, you know, there's also philosophical things. You know, is, is Could the state create a majority-minority congressional seat or make a shape around, you know, maybe the eastern portion of of Denver or a new district in the south Denver metro area. So there's lots of different possibilities. Yeah. One of my favorites before the the draft map was actually released was this idea of putting the district in northern Colorado, just totally away from Denver, you know, putting Larimer and Well counties together, which, you know, I think would have been interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, right now, the nonpartisan staff started with a, a map that would have this new 8th Congressional District in the northern suburbs of Denver and stretching northeast along Route 85 into Weld County. Right. And that location does make sense because it's an area of the state that's seen a lot of growth in the last 10 years. Another interesting thing is that this area makes up about 30 percent of Colorado's Hispanic and Latino population. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to sort of the other communities of interest, well, let's just say people within the boundaries of this draft vision of CD8 uh, yeah, they don't see high that, <laughs> as I learned on a recent road trip within the boundaries of this new proposed district. I'm driving north from Thornton on U.S. Route 85. If you look at the proposed map of the 8th Congressional District, this highway is the spine of the draft district as it stretches up and out of the North Denver metro area. 
It looks good on paper, but I wanted to hear from the people who find themselves in this proposed district, and I have a friend along for the ride. I'm Grace Hood. I'm the former energy and environment reporter for CPR, and I'm heading to grad school this fall to study urban and regional planning. Grace spent a lot of time reporting in this part of the state, and I wanted to know what caught her eye driving this road again. I would say the biggest change that I've noticed is uh, fields being turned into developments. You can see construction cranes on both sides of the four-lane highway. People have moved north out of Denver in search of affordable housing, or better schools, or even a more quiet existence. It's helped drive the population growth of this area. Brighton has grown about 10,000 people in the last decade. This southern part of Weld County that we're approaching is really comprised a significant chunk of growth, which is, I, I think, a big reason why Colorado got its own uh, 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 an additional congressional district here. But it feels like it doesn't take long before we're past the housing developments and into a landscape of grain silos and... One, two, three, four pump jacks in a field to my right. Signs of the oil and gas industry. Ag and energy, the two prevailing interests the further north we drive. I stopped in at one of the towns strung along this stretch of road, Platteville. We're a close-knit community for the most part, I would say. A farming and agriculture community. Energy is big here, too. Yes, very big. That's Mayor Adrian Sandoval. I always describe Platteville as halfway between Denver and Greeley and close to neither. When she first saw the draft congressional map, one thought went through her mind. Holy smokes, we're going to get ignored. Completely ignored. For her, the math is simple. The southern portion of the district, which includes parts of Arvada, Westminster, Broomfield, Thornton, and Commerce City, has more than 600,000 people. Up in this rural part of the district... Fort Lupton and Platteville combined, we're only 11,000 population, which is 2%. She fears her rural community's concerns will be dwarfed by those of the urban communities to the south. It's something we also heard from voters around here. Leanne Larson lives in Milliken, the northernmost town in the proposed district, where energy strong signs can be seen in shop windows. When I showed the draft map to her, she had a visceral reaction. To me, it says my vote won't count. Only, only Denver will count. Do you not see a community of interest in the, in the map the way it's currently drawn? No, I don't think it's to our community's interest. Okay. We have a lot more in common with Well County and Greeley than we do Denver. But the rest of Well County will be in the 4th Congressional District. And then there is politics to think about. The North-South split is also a political one, with bluer areas closer to Denver getting redder as you head up the road. And overall, it would lean Democratic. Grace says whoever ends up representing this district will be torn between conflicting needs. Uh, I've always thought about uh, rural sort of being together to a certain extent and urban being together to a certain extent, and this is really both. So I think whoever ends up uh, with this district, if, if it's the boundaries are largely maintained, it's going to have some challenges. How do you balance oil and gas jobs with communities in the South that are concerned about the health, environmental, and climate change effects of that industry? How do you balance the ag sector in the North with the science and tech sector of the South? But those aren't the only questions this district raises. The Denver metro area is not a political monolith.
Zoom in on the southern portion of CD8, and you see a cross-section of counties, cities, and towns, each with their own identity, many of which get divvied up between different districts. So when I first looked at it, I was confused. Tracy Craftharp is a Jefferson County commissioner. She's happy the state is getting another voice in Congress. And she thinks there are some advantages to having the eastern part of Jefferson County in the new district. But she doesn't see a common thread overall for her town, especially when you look at how the congressional map compares to the statehouse maps. When I second looked at it and really started looking into it, I was even more confused. Because for me, my house district goes south and west. My Senate district goes north, and then my congressional district divides up my town and um, goes north um, into areas like Weld County. She doesn't like that Arvada in particular is split between two congressional districts. Arvada Mayor Mark Williams feels the same way. For him, this summer's tragic shooting of a police officer in Old Town showed in stark relief his community of interest. And it wasn't just Arvada police. It was Wheat Ridge. It was Jefferson County Sheriff's Department. It was Lakewood, um, Edgewater. All of them immediately uh, were, were on scene. And that's a community of interest. His priority is that Arvada stay with the rest of Jefferson County. Public safety, health care, infrastructure, economic development, higher education is Jefferson County focused. And that was usually the main request from the public at the redistricting commission's hearings. Keep my city, keep my county whole. We believe the commission to ensure Commercilli is wholly located in Congressional District 8. In the state I Senate consider the whole north part of Thornton to be a very connected segment of a larger community with many common interests, including infrastructure, community planning. As a community of interest, I'd love to see Boulder County stay whole. So draw the but commissioners have a question for people making this request. Where else would you lose or add population? What other city or county would be divided? After all, the congressional districts have to have exact populations. Mayor Williams knows it's going to be a challenge. If you move one line, the ripple effect to keep the population number even means other lines move. And other things, like political makeup, changes. It's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, when you push inside the bubble. You know, when you push on one edge, the other edge moves. And so it's, they've, got a, they've got a lot of uh, work to get ahead of them. One group that has waded through the data to suggest concrete changes to the draft map is the Colorado Latino Leadership Advocacy and Research Organization, CLARO. Their goal is to ensure Colorado's Latino population has equitable representation. Alex Apodaca-Cobell says in Claro's 8th district, Latinos would make up about 40 percent of the population. That's about 10 percent higher than the draft map. It leaves out Jeff Cohen-Weld and instead would get population from the western and northern part of Denver. So we thought that was important to have the district centered in Adams County where there's been so much growth. And um, traditionally, the community has not been the center of um voting power and attention. Adams County knows a thing or two about being split between congressional districts. County Commissioner Emma Pinter says right now they have three congressional offices to meet with, the fourth, the sixth, and the seventh. It is an issue and it can also be an asset where we have multiple advocates. It really depends on who our members of Congress are and how much they um, identify with Adams County and feel rooted in the struggles that we're facing. Back in Platteville, Spencer Bradnan isn't as concerned by all the differences found within the proposed eighth. He likes that his hometown could be in a much smaller, at least geographically, district than the fourth, which comprises much of the eastern part of the state. 
and the Platteville Board of Trustee member adds, if everyone is equally unhappy, maybe it's a good thing. We're all Coloradans, we're all humans. I don't see why we have to draw barriers and lines between each other. Although no one knows how drastically, most people expect the draft congressional map to change. The first version didn't really focus on communities of interest. That's what the public hearings have been for. It won't be until the next map comes out that we'll find out who and what areas of the state were successful when it came to advocating for their community of interest and where the final lines of CD8 may land. Caitlin Kim with an excerpt of Purplish, CPR's politics podcast. Hear the full episode, which also features public affairs reporter Benta Berkland, through Apple, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts, and always at CPR.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to these lovely folks. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.